this vivid dream. And then we walk back into the interior of that musical instrument, the darkness inside the golden tubes of the trumpet. And we, we kept walking and walking and I listened and I heard mother say something to me. Now just keep walking, Billy. Just keep walking. Even in the darkness, there will be music. Keep walking. And I looked up and she wasn't there. And I'm walking to this day. Walk in the forest. In the middle of the night. In the traffic. In the middle of the day. I walk the wrong way. Up the escalator. And I sing the First Amendment in Times Square. Hi, I'm Cory Doctorow, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. You're listening to KBOO Portland. The following program is a rebroadcast. For all of KBOO's archived audio, please visit our website at kboo.fm. It's 10.30 here in Portland, Oregon, and it's time for Film at 11 here on KBOO Community Radio Portland. But first this. This is Jeff Godsell, a contributor to Film at 11 on Friday mornings here on KBOO. Appreciating the arts and exploring other cultures is a vital part of a healthy society. The free exchange of ideas through artistic expression can be how we communicate how we express our humanity, how we really connect with each other. Now, as obvious as this truth is, it does not always find favor with political establishments. So now, more than ever, support for the arts must come from each and every one of us. At a time when truth itself is under attack, valuable resources like the programming here on KBU need your help to continue the free flow of ideas and expression. Even in good times, the arts struggle to stay funded. But now, with the challenges facing all of us every day, it is so important that the voices of compassion and open expression continue to be heard. Won't you join me in supporting this station with a contribution of any amount at kboo.fm give. Or if you prefer, donations can be sent to kboo.fm 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Your donation will help ensure that the love of the arts and cultural diversity will continue to enrich our community. Thank you. For starters, let's consider two new franchise films. One of the things that one has to consider amid all of the recent cartoon, comic book, and revival franchises, that the Titans series, with King Kong, Godzilla, and other monsters, is the most coherent. Also, there aren't that many of them yet. The special effects are consistently good, the casts are enjoyable, and as long as you keep in mind that these movies are for children, they are enjoyable enough. But the most important facet is that the viewer doesn't have to juggle or remember scores of comics and characters. Right now, Godzilla is out there and he's hurting people. We don't know why. 
We need Kong. The world needs him. In this one, Kong has been shielded on a secret island from his mortal enemy, Godzilla, but a mad technocrat needs the monster to go to the Hollow Earth entry point, Antarctica, to fetch some device that will give the technocrat's secret weapon power. Meanwhile, Godzilla has been attacking the technocrat's industrial campus, but what at first seems to be random terror is part of a plan on the Titan's part, which the film explains soon enough. The cast includes... Alexander Sarsgaard, Millie Bobby Brown, Rebecca Hall as King Kong's minder, Brian Tyree Henry as a conspiracy theorist, Shun Oguri and Damien Bashir as the two of the villains, and Lance Reddick in a small role, along with Kyle Chandler. But again, it's a kids movie, so it's safe for you helicopter parents out there. I detected only one naughty word in the whole thing. Also, there's Zack Snyder's Justice League, his four-hour version of a film that was partially reshot by the now-discredited Joss Whedon. Uh, not caring for the original, which I can't even remember, to me this film, though long and occasionally lugubrious, is much better as a mythos of comic books, though weighted toward an Ayn Randian worldview like Steve Ditko's old Marvel comics, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. In brief, Batman needs to assemble a league to fight a looming monster no one superhero can handle. And the resultant team needs then to resurrect Superman from the dead. The narrative can be convoluted, the parts with Wonder Woman, and the action on the Amazon island back home are the best parts. And also the special effects are top notch. Though in the end, the bulk of animation in a film like this renders it, as I've said before, cartoons. The picture features Ben Affleck as Batman, Henry Cavill as Superman, Amy Adams as Lois Lane, the terrific Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, Ray Fisher, Jason Momoa, Willem Dafoe, Jesse Eisenberg, Jeremy Irons as Alfred the Butler, Diane Lane as Mother Kent, Connie Nielsen as Queen Hippolyta, and J.K. Simmons as Commissioner Gordon, with Siren Hines doing the voice of the first villain of the piece, Steppenwolf. Well, the film is probably too violent, even depressing for kids. Now we turn to our Los Angeles correspondent, Jeff Godsell, for another of his Essentials of Cinema, this time on Charlie Kaufman. I've really enjoyed contributing to Film at 11 for the last few months, and I've noticed that for each film note that I provide, it's the movie itself that dictates what style my commentary will be. For some of the older, lesser-known films, I might provide a lot of the plot. Other films might include more of the backstory of how they're made. But when it came to Being John Malkovich from 1999, I found that I didn't know what to say, didn't know where to start. Despite the fact that I love this movie, I couldn't just say, well, this movie is so good, so funny, so unique, you just really have to see it. And I couldn't just relay the plot. It's too crazy. I couldn't hear myself saying, John Cusack plays an unemployed puppeteer in Manhattan, living with his wife, Cameron Diaz, looking as unglamorous as possible, in their cluttered home with animal rescues, including a chimpanzee and an iguana. Cusack gets a job as a file clerk in an office on the seven and a half floor of a high-rise, 
an office with absurdly low ceilings and a passageway in the wall behind a file cabinet in the storage room. This passageway is actually a portal, and if you crawl into it, you will be transported into the head of John Malkovich. John Malkovich is played by John Malkovich, and then it goes on from there. I couldn't just say that. It would bring up more questions and answers. And I don't know how director Spike Jones knew so well how to pull off his friend Charlie Kaufman's screenplay in both of their feature debuts. Movies like this usually end up being called offbeat or wacky or maybe quirky, but not brilliant like this one. Tell me, Craig, why do you love puppeteering? Well, Maxine, I'm not sure exactly. Perhaps it's the idea of becoming someone else for a little while, being inside another skin, thinking differently, moving differently, feeling differently. Interesting, Craig. Would you like to be inside my skin? Think what I think. Feel what I feel. More than anything, Maxine. It's good in here, Craig. It's better than your wildest dreams. I imagine trying to assemble the cast and finding out that some or all of them just don't quite get it, then it wouldn't work. But everyone in Bring John Malkovich seems to understand exactly what Jones and Kaufman are trying to do. From the leads, to Catherine Keener, to Orson Bean, and Mary Kay Place. There isn't one wrong note. And certainly not from John Malkovich, which is especially fortunate because once Kaufman got the idea for a screenplay of going into someone's head, it was going to be John Malkovich. There was no plan B. And if Malkovich didn't want to do the movie, then there would be no movie. Even though some studio people would wonder later, why can't it be being Tom Cruise? It must have been an absolute blast to be in this movie. As an actor myself, I just love a movie where you can find one actor saying to another, so what's it like being an actor? As unusual and unpredictable as being John Malkovich is, it's never difficult to follow. It has its own kind of logic existing in its own universe, but not all that different from the one that the rest of us live in. I remember first seeing it when it came out in 99 and thinking, Okay, the 90s really sucked for movies. Now here's being John Malkovich. So good, but so weird. Maybe all the good movies now are going to be weird. But it wasn't really true. At least not until the next Spike Jones movie, Adaptation. Or the next Michel Gondry movie, like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Gondry and Jones are friends. And this is made clear, by the way, on the Criterion edition of being John Malkovich, where the truncated commentary is not by director Jones, but by Michelle Gondry. But then about halfway through the commentary, Gondry calls Jones on the phone and puts him on speaker, and then they both chat through the rest of the movie. Yeah. So 
Being John Malkovich is really great, but it is a tough movie to summarize or to explain or even to coherently talk about. Even though, I guess, that's what I just tried to do. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jeff. And you are listening to Film at 11 here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. And now this. You know, one unique facet that makes Portland Portland is that we are one of the few major cities with a still active community-supported radio station. Sure, the so-called major cities, such as Los Angeles and New York City, have their stations, but ours is KBOO Portland, serving the city for the past 50-plus years, serving the great Northwest, and indeed, through the Internet, the whole wide world. So we are asking you to sign up via kboo.fm forward stroke give to become a member. We aren't in the station to take your calls right now, but you can show your support by joining online. Again, that's kboo.fm slash give. Or you can also mail a contribution to the station itself at 20 East 8th Avenue in Portland, Oregon, 97214. Please join us today. Now we turn to Matthew of KBOO's Monthly Gremlin Time, here to tell us about another pop culture discovery. For today, I want to take a look at the uh, dark science fiction comedy from 2018, an independent film shot on the streets of Oakland, California. It stars Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson. They're really awesome in this. And I'm, of course, talking about... Uh, Boots Riley's satiric, sorry to bother you. I'm just out here surviving. And what I'm doing right now won't even matter. Baby, baby, it will always matter. Hey, Cash, how much longer I got to wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you want to hog it to yourself and your family. Me and my family? Yeah. Cash is, I'm your uncle. I just really need a job. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Uh, Mr. Davidson, cash the screen here. Sorry to bother. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. You're doing so good with the voice thing. Holla, 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 holla. You're going upstairs, power caller. Uh, you can hear that this movie is totally outrageous, but it's totally brilliant. It's just so refreshing to see an independent film made outside of the entertainment establishment and not having to follow the rules about things. I find this movie just really engaging with lots of fresh ideas in it, and especially it takes the side of the workers. I got promoted. I'm a power caller. What did I sell? They're not selling it, but we sell it. No, well, there's no amount of money that make me do that. Here's the starting salary. Well, man, I'm going to have to get me some new suits. It is morally emaciated. I can't ride with you. I'm doing something I'm really good at. Lakeith Stanfield uh, stars as uh, Cassius Green, whose name is shortened to Cash Green, uh, is really wonderful here as a sort of everyman worker. And Tessa Thompson as his girlfriend, uh, performance artist Detroit, 
is really good as well. And in fact, the way the relationship between these two characters is just wonderful because it's not one person over the other. You really get that yin-yang uh, sense of the male and the female. And he's, as you can hear in that little clip from the trailer, he's concerned about his morality. What sort of mark is he going to make in the world? And he's worried about that. And she says, no, it's going to be all right, as from the female side is. It's like calming and life-bringing and stuff. Um, Lakeith's character, uh, Cash, uh, needs to raise some money for his uncle, who's losing his house. Though this is kind of like in the background there, but the motivation in the story is that he gets this job at a telemarketing company because he wants to keep his uncle from losing his house, which he's living in. But it's also, you know, sort of a solid motivation for the character. And then once we get into telemarketing, which uh, uh, Boots Riley had worked in, this is a wonderful satire on that sort of work environment, but on work in general. And so it's a wonderful choice to use to make statements about you know, workers and management. And then it takes this amazing surrealistic twist, which moves this movie into the world of science fiction. It reminds me a lot of Old Lucky Man, starring uh, Malcolm McDowell. And, but the sort of surrealistic take in Old Lucky Man, I find similar in this movie, Sorry to Bother You. Um, one of the key scenes is when Danny Glover shows up just out of nowhere. Suddenly he's sitting next to uh, Cash in the phone bank and he explains to him what he has to do to get by in this job. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. People say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why is it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. And his wife is just proper. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the real deal. Okay, so like... Hello, Mr. Everett. Cassius Green here. Sorry to bother you. I mean, you, you got it wrong. I'm not talking about <laughs> sounding all nasal. It's like sounding like you don't have a care. Got your bills paid. You happy about your future. You about ready to jump in your Ferrari out there after you get off this call. Put some real breath in there. Breezy, like, I don't really need this money. You've never been fired. <laughs> Only laid off. It's not really a white voice. It's what they wish they sounded like. So it's like what they think they're supposed to sound like. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regalview. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? And so with this tip, Cash is able to uh, really move ahead in the company and eventually get promoted up to a power caller where he's able to uh, give his uncle the money to uh, save his house and even move into his own apartment and buy new clothes and everything. But then what is the cost of all this? And it starts to pull him apart from his girlfriend, uh, played by Tessa Thompson, who puts on a performance uh, presentation at her gallery to try and to uh, change Cash's mind about what he's doing by accepting this promotion and moving up to the power callers. And it's really brilliant how 
uh, Riley shows the the office of the power college. It's just an unfinished part of a building. There's no walls or anything, just the concrete supports. But everybody's dressed like fashion models, and they're just leaning up against pillars or sitting on blocks of concrete, like the gods on top of Olympus, just talking on the phone, making power calls. Uh, just a brilliant movie. Uh, sorry to bother you. I was able to rent it over on uh, YouTube, uh, and you can probably find it in some other places right now. Uh, remember the old show Max Headroom, where they used to say, 10 minutes into the future? Well, with this movie, I think those 10 minutes have gone by. Thank you, Matthew. And this week in our book corner, Mark Mohan and I discuss Mark Harris's new biography of director Mike Nichols. Well, I'm here with Mark Mohan, and we're about to talk about a new biography called Mike Nichols' A Life, and it's written by Mark Harris, who used to write for Entertainment Weekly and is also the author of two previous books, one on the year 1966 or 68, and the second one, clever idea for a book, Five Came Back, which is about five Hollywood directors and the effect that World War II had on them. So how's his new book? His new book is, is it was very enjoyable, I thought, and informative and uh, and brisk, uh, similar to his other books, which I've liked a lot. Like yes. you, I thought Five Came Back was a fantastic book. He nails the trick of writing in, a, in an intelligent, smart, fact-filled way, but also it moves along. It doesn't feel too often like you get bogged down in the details. Um, and it's about Mike Nichols, who is probably best known as the director of The Graduate. That was his second feature film. Prior to that, he was famous for being part of a comedy duo with Elaine May, Nichols and May. They were quite big in the early 1960s. They then split up. He went on to become a very acclaimed and lauded theater director. And then for the rest of his life, moved between Broadway and Hollywood with really great ease. Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was his first film. And I don't know how many films he made altogether, but there are many, many classics or semi-classics in there, including Silkwood, including Angels in America for HBO. He moved into doing television uh, later in his career. And uh, he's just a fascinating, fascinating figure. Escaped uh, Europe on the cusp of World War II, came out on a boat when he was seven or nine years old. Curious fact completely bald due to a childhood reaction to some sort of medicine, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, But you'd never know it because he always had a very well done hairpiece. I think you would know it in 1955 because uh, wig making hadn't been uh, become a specialty yet. And uh, I think it was Elizabeth Taylor who introduced him to his final wig maker. But uh, he often had the scent of wig glue about him. I think that Mark Harris is pretty good at the solving the problem of then he directed this show and here's a summary of how that show went and here's the reviews and then he went to make this movie and here's the reviews of that and all the troubles with George C. Scott. And because you could probably write a book about the making of every single one of his movies. They're so packed with stuff and he was so insightful. You really learn a lot about what it about directing technique and his individual approach and what made him such a great director of actors. I loved his movies when I was a kid, but then later on, I began to feel like he didn't really have, that he's what you would call in the French periodicals, a métier en scène, somebody who could put a movie together but didn't particularly have any personal world vision. But now the book makes me realize that he does have a personality that shows through in the movies, although he may not have been conscious of it, but there's a particular section where it's about, it's about relationships and how they work 
and how people work them out, usually while sitting on a bed. Yes, there's a, there's a, there's a nice section of photos as there mm -hmm. usually is in a biography like this, and I'm sure you recall there. Yeah, there's there are there's that a quote to that effect referring to, and then there are twelve or fifteen photos from various films or plays that he directed in which a man and a woman <laughs> are sitting on or standing near a bed resolving their issues. I thought that was a really great insight, and I think there's just a maybe this stems from the fact that he was so good with actors and that he was an actor himself. Just a you know it's such a broad almost meaningless word, but there's a humanism to what yes. he's doing um, even if like you say it's not coming at anything from a very particular political or social viewpoint beyond just kind of a broadly liberal perspective but there is that just respect for humans and their ability to and the troubles they have as well bouncing off one another and relating and just kind of getting through this crazy world you know um, yes you old old married couples arguing in, in Virginia Woolf or the sort of four similar four character setup in his late movie Closer. They're, they're, he does well with those small ensembles. Right, and uh, I'd forgotten how many movies he'd made. I turned the page of a chapter and there's, oh, now we're at postcards, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, and then, then we're into regarding Henry and then we're, and I'd forgotten all the plays that he'd done too. Not that I've ever yeah. seen any, but he yeah, all the work he did with Neil Simon and Tom Stoppard, yeah. and you know, and that's, he also was he kind of bridged Hollywood and Broadway in this sense. He also bridged kind of middlebrow and highbrow culture mm -hmm. in the way that he he moved so easily in both of those worlds. It seems like, um, and that's kind of a particularly American thing. Well, I I haven't even finished the book yet. It's only nine hundred pages long, but I am at this rather sad moment when he finally gets a chance to direct Beckett's Waiting for Godot, yeah. and the way that it is looked down upon by the writers that he's trivialized it and turned it into shtick. This and, is the, the famous version that has uh, Steve Martin and Robin Williams as the... Yeah. yeah, and one thing that the book brings home to me, and I think also perhaps to Mark Harris himself, who was indeed a movie reviewer for Entertainment Weekly, but suddenly the movie is finished and the reviews come out, and then all these writers in New York publications and national publications start making terrible terrible cracks about him and saying just the meanest things and it gave me pause I thought oh god I hope I'm never quoted in one of these biographies not that, not that I would You've be never said anything that mean Doug wrote for a small town newspaper in a drink water side place with a state that nobody had heard of by the time I was writing it so nobody nobody cared maybe a Gus Van Zant movie but I can't think of anybody else uh, that you know, they'd even try to track down anything I wrote. But it did give me pause to think, geez, writers can be so callous. And because we've just been embedded with him and all his worries about a production or a, a film. And then, and sometimes they don't turn out, such as Day of the Dolphin, though I have a, a small weakness for it. My favorite is probably Carnal Knowledge, but he did so many movies, especially in his early years, that are so good. And then had a rebirth around the time of Silkwood and went on, but still people are saying these mean things about him. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it, it comes back to that notion that, that you get from reading the book that no matter what the project was, he, you know, with perhaps one or two exceptions, that terrible Gary Shandling movie, but he, he would, he put his heart and soul into yeah. trying to make the thing as good as it could be. And, and I'm reminded of a quote, I always feel uh, like, a, like a jerk bringing this up, something Christopher Walken once said to me in a telephone interview, which uh -huh. is, it's just as difficult to make a bad movie as it is to make a good movie. <laughs> 
Yes, that's true. They're always trying, or almost always. Yeah. And it's funny because Christopher Walken gave him a little bit of trouble when they were doing Hurley Burley. Yes. Uh, I did not realize he was involved in that play either. The David, uh, David Rabe, another, another, you know. This is the guy who's responsible in large, uh, significant part of the careers of Dustin Hoffman, Meryl Streep, you know, these these leading actors. They come on the scene and they're and they're just starting off. Um, you know, even Meryl Streep, very early, Silkwood, mm -hmm. and they become icons and a you know, he gets, he should get the, some credit for that. That's true. And then also he was able to discover them so early, but also stick with them through yeah. many, many films. His collaborations with Meryl Streep are, I don't know, seven or eight movies yeah. and a play or two. Anyway, he was quite loyal, though he did apparently have a bit of a temper from time to time. And mm -hmm. then there's this thread in his life where once he starts getting a little bit of money, he becomes money crazy and starts trafficking in Arabian horses. Yes. I, yes. Didn't, I didn't expect that. In the acknowledgments for the book, it, it, he mentions right off the bat that, that Diane Sawyer, his widow, and, and his children all gave Mark Harris permission to do the book, but also no interference or review of the material or anything prior to publication. And that shows in the sense that it's a very respectful biography, but it does not shy away from addressing personality quirks like that. Yeah. You mentioned materialism, drug use, depression, but you know, poor behavior. And one of the reasons he can do that too is because Mike Nichols did it. You know, often one of his techniques was to tell an actor, what does this remind you of? What incident in your life? And then he would tell of an incident in his life, including being addicted to drugs twice in his life, uh, what that meant to him and how it affected his ability to perceive things. Because he, he's always trying to get at the truth of relations between people and their own self-knowledge. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic telling, I thought, of a really wonderful and maybe un, even though he was really famous and did all these great movies, a somewhat unknown life. Uh, so I, yes. I, give it, I give it two thumbs up in the grand tradition. That's absolutely a really good point because you really, the whole book is such a revelation. Every chapter has new things about him and new things about the making of the movies. And in fact, on Twitter, Mark Harris has started to take parts of the book that were cut out and tweet them. For yeah. example, there's a, he recently had a great quote from Nathan Lane, who was in The Birdcage who edited it out for some reason. I guess it just it had already been established, but it's a really wonderful anecdote about uh, Nichols giving him some really valuable advice at a moment when Nathan Lane was feeling kind of stuck with the part. He didn't quite know what to do with it. And then there's that other part where Hank Azaria was having trouble in the birdcage trying to figure out why he is getting hysterical when Nathan Lane's character is getting hysterical. And Mike Nichols, who often used Judy Garland as an example, of performing, I told him the anecdote of how he'd once talked to Judy Garland's dresser before going on and how Garland would always be totally hysterical. And so the dresser's technique was to get more hysterical so that Garland had to calm her down. And so he explains that's what's happening between Nathan Lane and Hank Azaria's character. Uh, just in, great insights like that all through director the book. As, director as therapist. <laughs> really understanding how to... All right. Well, we both agree it's a really good book. Yeah. I, he's... I, he's one of the best people doing, you know, and what it reminded me of, frankly, and I'm, it was some of Sean Levy's books uh, in the way that it just does a, such a good job of getting at, you know, it, 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 it is that kind of one thing after another telling of a career, but it also points out connections between people you might not have been aware of, uh, coincidences in, in life that are so fascinating and, and, you know, really does give you some insight into how this stuff gets made. That's true. And, and I think the best thing you can say about it is 
that it makes you want to see some of the movies again. You're listening to to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio is a proud sponsor of the Portland Folk Music Society Concert Series, which continues Saturday, November 18th with Hubby Jenkins, a live concert of old-time American music following African-American influence in America's traditional music forms. That's Hubby Jenkins on Saturday, November 18th at 7.30 p.m. at the Reedwood Friends Church in Southeast Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. I'm all in the ground, I'd root that mountain down and I wish I was a mole in the ground. Tune in to KBOO Monday mornings at 9 for the Old Mole Variety Hour, your source for radically democratic...